Aloha Kako, you're listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exist to share the voices of those connected to the land. Our vision is to create a resource for Pilina or connection to place, and Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Aloha Kako, Oba Onanea Loko Uinoa, No Papukulea Wahumayao, Noho Aoma Kapule. Hello, everyone. My name is Nanea Lo, and I come from Papukulea Wahu. And I'm now residing back in Kapolei in the Hawaiian Kingdom. Yes, finally. Um, mahalo nui for joining us on another episode of Native Stories. So we have a treat for you all. We are doing the COVID-19 series on community work in the Hawaiian Kingdom. And we're also introducing our Kupuna series. We've been getting tons of feedback on how you all see the importance of Kupuna stories, and we do too. What this series is about, it's going to be a collection of stories that will be recorded with your Kupuna or if you're a Kupuna. And just basically so you guys can have it and share it for years to come, we will record your Kupuna um, and they will share a place-based story or mo'olelo about where they grew up or just something historic and interesting that they want to share with the Lahui or the world. So if anybody is listening out there and you're interested and you're 70 years old or up, Native Stories is interested in recording with you and, you know, sharing, being that collective knowledge source for you all. Today we have Dr. Lynette Cruz. I know Auntie Lynette from Aloha Aina Gatherings, and she's also the Po'or president for Hui Aloha Aina o Kale Maile Ali'i. And I'm ecstatic to have her on because she has been an Aloha Aina patriot for years, and I'm so happy that she can share with you all her mana'o ike mo'olelo. So Dr. Cruz graduated from Hawaii Loa College in 1987 with a BA in Pacific Studies, and she became a grantee at East West Center and has been a graduate student in anthropology um, in 1988 at the University of Hawaii Manoa. She has her MA in anthropology, in, and she got it in 1990, and her PhD in anthropology in 2003. She also taught at Hawaii Loa College, Kapiolani Community College, and UHM between 1990 and 2000. For her other Aloha work, she has worked at Hui uh, Nao, and she served as the Wahoo Island Educational Coordinator for the Sovereignty Education Project in 1991 to 93. She was the fund as coordinator for Earth Justice Legal Defense for the Ahupua'a Action Alliance in 1994 to 1996, and she has served on the board of Hawaii People's Fund in 1995 as president of the board in 1996 to 1998, and she's also served on the Board of Life and the Land from 2000 to present. And Auntie Lynette has worked for peace and justice organizations like Malama Makua and Hui Aloha Aino Kale Maile Ali'i, where, as I mentioned before, she's president and she's president of both. So as you can see, Auntie is super busy and that's why I've been having, I've been wanting to get her on for a long time, but yes, she's finally on. So Aloha Auntie and can you share with our listeners 
uh, where you're from and maybe give us a little story um, from when you were younger about that place. Sure. Aloha. Thank you for having me. I'm Lynette Cruz and actually born in Hilo. Um, and my parents moved to Oahu when I was five because my father couldn't get a job. Nobody could get a job, I guess. And then they moved here in Oahu, where I live now. I grew up in Kapahulu in my grandparents' house. Lucky, lucky for me. And <clears throat> I live now in Waianae. But just a little bit about my growing up and what that was like. My, I think my parents were really good Americans. You know, they had already been um, denationalized, I guess is the term for it, but they had already been taught in a school system that pretty much stripped Hawaiian history out of it, out of education and gave us an American version of what our history was. So my parents were, I think, good Americans, but my, my grandma was not. And I say that because she was born in the late 1800s. And so she knew even though she never talked about what was going on, she knew. So I was one of those persons my age, I'm like 76 now, my age who grew up at a time when all their parents and grandparents spoke Hawaiian language, but not to them. So we were discouraged from speaking Hawaiian language, even though we heard it all the time and we understood it. We were taught to speak in English because it would be better for our future success, if you can believe that. So. That was how I grew up. It was awesome to live in my grandparents' house because I witnessed, along with my sister, how Hawaiian culture was practiced when we were growing up. And so I don't know if any of that stuff happens nowadays, but when I was little, it was normal. It was normal for me, for example, to see my grandma come home from a funeral and get a... Uh, tea leaf from the yard and dip it in water and Hawaiian salt and, and sprinkle it on everything around the house outside and then come inside and sprinkle that water on everybody inside. So we're, she was doing a kind of pikai already and we never knew what that was. Basically, we just thought it was normal and everybody was doing that. So we never questioned. Now, now I know, of course, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to experience something because talking about it without the experience really doesn't, doesn't go far. It's a talking thing as opposed to a living thing, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that resonates with me because um, my mom, she's the youngest of seven children. So she actually grew up with her tutu. And, like, she tells me similar things that are just, like, same kind of thing when you're talking about your life, like, kind of resonates with the stories that my mom has told me about her living with her tutu as well. Yeah. You want to hear a story? Yes. <laughs> so my, my mother was a musician. My mother and father both played music, but my father worked for Young Brothers on a tugboat. Um, as an oiler, so he traveled a lot. I mean, the, the tugboats were going to all these different countries and bringing back uh, containers and barges. Anyway, my mother was a musician and played at the Kodak Hula Show, which nobody, not too many people remember, but 
from the time I was little, my sister and I used to go to the Kodak Hula Show and swim while my mother was playing uh, music with their the Kodak Hula group, that whole bunch of people right at the place it's now called Kaimana Beach. It didn't used to be called that. It was called San Susi Beach. And then before that, it was something else. But um, it wasn't a beach. It was a reef. It, it's a beach now because they imported sand and covered all that stuff up, I think, for tourism and for hotels. But I remember going there and walking on the reef a lot because nobody really wanted to watch the Kodak Hula show. All of us, all the kids who went and who were children of the performers, um, the musicians and the hula dancers, always went to the beach to swim. <clears throat> so one day, I remember my mother telling us, uh, it was, she wasn't working, it was on a weekend, and she would always go to San Susi Beach to the reef to pick limu. And um, my grandma really liked that. So my mother would go like, you know, every couple of days together. And one day she went to get limu and she wore tabis because you got to walk on the reef. And, and one of those big hats that the uh, guys that worked in the plantation wore, you know, those big straw hats that were tied under your chin. And she said, well, she was sitting on the reef picking limu and a wind came and her hat flew off her head, it just flipped over and it was upside down. And an uhu jumped into her hat, fairly big, the, the red red one. So she was shocked. So she picked up her hat and the fish and she went home. And she told my grandma about that and what happened. And then my grandma took the fish and then cleaned it and she cooked it for dinner. But she told my mother later that night that, um, she couldn't go to the beach anymore because, because for whatever reason, my mother didn't know what the reason was. She just knew she couldn't go to the beach, but she didn't listen. Who listens? So the next time she felt like going into Piklimo, she went to the beach. And as soon as she stepped in the water, the bottom of her feet started to crack and bleed. And that was the last time she went into the water. I know there's a story behind it. I don't know. Nobody wanted to tell us. So I'm still... Trying to figure out. Trying to figure it out. It, yes. I'm going to assume it has to do with how much is enough. My mother had been gathering forever, and then she couldn't, and she didn't. So I was a little kid, and she never went back to gather limo again after that. But these things happen, you know? My grandma knew it. My grandma told her. She wasn't paying attention. So I'm thinking of all the things that we we misunderstood or, or that we've lost out on because that whole generation of people who could tell us are no longer here. What a major loss. Mm -hmm. It's a story, but it's, it's also kind of my story too, because my mom is not here now. Mm. Mahalo for sharing. I know um, I grew up when I was younger. Um, I grew up in Papakalea and that's kind of like our family, you know, Ohana house where people just come and go and like, you know, everybody just lives there, like all the cousins when they move back to Hawaii and all that kind of stuff. But so I, I kind of remember too, like growing up with my tutu and she's like, she would have her like girlfriends over from church and stuff like that. And it's a two-story house. So 
on the bottom, like sometimes when her girlfriends would come over, I would go like they would tell us go downstairs or whatever, you know, because they're doing their thing. But I would hear them like speaking Olala Hawaii. But then as soon as I like a couple of times, like I would rush back up because I wanted to hear them speaking. And then they would just like be really quiet after. And and then I'd, I remember asking my tutu one time, like, oh, how come, you know, you guys don't speak in front of us or whatever and she'd just be like it's okay it's okay baby you know don't worry about it (laughs) and so I'm just little like okay whatever but I mean when I when people share with me their stories of yeah like those kinds of stories it makes me reminisce too about yeah like how there's certain nuances to things and how we may never know because yeah that generation is is going into the next realm yes that's so sad for me because it's that much less I get to pass on you know I'm at that age I think where I can actually pass stuff on to younger people who don't have a clue and any of this stuff was going on if they didn't grow up in Hawaii or or if they grew up at a time when their parents were already being quiet you know just keeping keeping that information to themselves, I, I think for our benefit, I don't know. I'm not really sure what was going on. Maybe fear that, that we would be, I don't know, that life would be more complicated for us if we, if we continue to post. Yeah, I know that. So everybody knows this, whoever listens to um, Native Stories and has listened to the episodes that I've done, but I have been indoctrinated and my mom was indoctrinated. And, you know, it was only maybe like nine years ago that I decided that like, Hey, I need to like really learn who I am as a Kanaka Mo'oli, like living in my homelands of my ancestors, you know, to really figure out where I'm going in life. And ever since then I've been, um, you know, when, I've been taking like Hawaiian classes from UH or from Leeward Community College and some of the assignments would be to interview my mom or my dad and ask them about their history, you know. And I've noticed that when I start, when I sit down with my mom or my dad and I ask them about their their histories and about their identity as, as Kanaka Moli, um, it's painful for them. Like plenty of times they've cried in front of me when they're like thinking about, you know, their histories and maybe how they could have done more. So it's interesting too, like just thinking about how us as Kanakamoli, we all have different paths and journeys and histories and how that all has affected us in our own personal ways. Yes. I feel sad for them, too. I, I asked my mother once, how come now, you know, in your older age, and she's like 90 already, I said, how come now in your older age you, you are speaking Hawaiian language with all of these older people and you never spoke to us? Because I was hurt. And I, I felt like something was denied me because cause I wasn't able to speak that language. Instead, I'm trying to think like a Hawaiian person in English, if you know what I mean. It's not exactly easy, but there are things that came down to us 
to my generation and beyond my generation from my grandparents that feel Hawaiian. Even if we got all of that training in English, it felt Hawaiian. I was trying to explain that to someone once, but I don't think they understood what I was talking about, but I don't care because <laughs> I understand. And I can recognize it in others when I see it. Yeah. Um, my mom tells me that, like, sometimes, too, like, she'll be like, you know, even though, because we have, like, these deep conversations because, you know, me as an inquisitive mind and, you know, trying to really understand myself and my identity and my place in this in this world um, and unlearning like my indoctrination while living, you know, these two paths of life. Um, she's always like, you know, I understand where you're coming from, but honestly, like my parents did the, my parents and my tutu them did the best that they could to raise me. And even though like I may have not been raised in a traditional quote unquote, like Hawaiian lifestyle, like there's things that I have lived through that were inherently cultural and traditional that like you will never understand because you never lived it. And I understand that. So I'm just like, okay, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You carry it. You can share it later in the future. And I carry stuff too. And I don't even know what I got, but at some point someone will say something that triggers a memory that I want to share with them so that they understand it, what they're going through. It's not the, they're not the first one. I mean, these things have happened before. Yeah, I'm I'm grateful for what I have. I'm grateful for the things they did teach us, even though it was like way, way too little. Um, but my grandma taught us how to be kind. That's it. And not because she said anything, but because she was. And we watched her, my sister and myself, and we tried to emulate her and do like she did. And I don't know. I think I'm lucky. You know, on reflection, I'm really happy to it that it was not an intellectual thing. And so I, I have a little bit of a bias against intellectuals who don't have a clue about what anything might be like in practice because they read something and somehow they become experts. Not like me, I'm just being like uh, my usual critical self, but it matters to me. No. Mahalo for sharing that. And I think that's beautiful to highlight because, or just out of my experience, like with my mom too, um, she always, throughout growing up, she would always tell me that like, you know, like my mom and my to do them always taught me to be, to treat others with respect and to be kind. And, you know, even if you don't have much, like that's how they were and how she is. And sometimes I feel that, my generation or the new generations, um, even though I do feel that these newer generations are like really grasping the olalo and everything. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's interesting to see and kind of compare how the generations have evolved or there's certain, like I understand there's certain um, teachings that, maybe I might have missed that my mom and her generation or like you guys have really embodied, if that makes sense. Yes, it makes sense. You know, long time ago, I grew up in Kapahulu, 
my grandparents uh, had a house, actually owned their own house uh, across the street from the Waikiki Library, which is like now considered Waikiki, right? All that area is mm -hmm. has not been incorporated into Waikiki, but back then it was Kapahulu still a separate com community, separate neighborhood. Um, so I grew up with in my grandma's house, and um, we we roamed that whole area, all of it. We of course nobody ever had a car to drive, and you know could catch the bus. We walked, kids. We walked a lot everywhere, all over the place. So you might say we kind of owned that area, and we felt comfortable. And when you begin to feel like you own a place, because you're so intimately familiar with every street. You know where everybody lives. You know how to run away quick because you can cut through somebody's yard and get out on a, a another street adjacent. Um, you know that neighborhood. You begin to own that neighborhood. It was like a really safe, safe growing up. I I think I'm really lucky because I don't know if that's true anymore. So mm -hmm. uh, uh, the teachings that you know they were giving us informally never formal, of course, of whatever teachings we got. We also learned a lot about how to be in the world, how to be respectful to your neighbors, um, how to just, I can't think of a better word than kind, how to be kind, whether people deserve kindness or not, how to do it anyway, how to make some adjustments to people who are, or were at the time new. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what we have now. We have to make adjustments to people who come to Hawaii who are new. And because they're new, they they don't get it. They get mm -hmm. left out. But they also act weird. You know, if you live in Hawaii long enough, you'll understand you can spot somebody like right away when they come in and with an attitude. Um, mm -hmm. But we learned from my grandparents that you make exceptions for those who don't get it in a little while they'll get it and then they're all part of this kind of like larger community that we never spoke of as community i don't think anybody ever used that word but now it's acceptable they were mm -hmm. just like people my grandmother fed everybody back then we didn't know the term latchkey kid and i don't know what it's called now but if you your parents work and you were home by yourself after mm -hmm. school they were at my house, my grandma's house. And then at dinner time, if their parents didn't come home, they were having dinner with us. And I thought that was normal. <laughs> I really did that. Whoever is in the house, when it's time to eat, they should eat with us. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized, oh, that's not normal. That was only in our house or a few houses. <laughs> not everybody. It's that kind of thing that I missed about them. That I, mm -hmm. I promote now, by the way. So if people are at my house when it's dinner time, they are staying for dinner. But it is not true everywhere. Yes, I can definitely agree with that too. I mean, me, I've always grown up in, in the homestead or, you know, I have like family all over the place, but, but even visiting my family, like in different places, that's not the homestead. I feel like I was privileged in a way to experience that type of aloha in the way that you know you do feel safe in your neighborhood um everybody knows everybody people like even if 
yeah, like when you come in the house, like someone's always asking, oh, did you want water? You know, are you hungry? Do you want something to eat? Um, it was only until I got older and like moved out and away and like lived on my own where I realized that, yeah, I feel like that's a very Hawaiian thing to do or have a part of your life or growing up is having that kind of community that um, nurtures one another. Yes. Yes. I don't even think it's necessarily Hawaiian, although we have it and we practiced it and it was aloha. And I think native peoples tend to be like that. Yes. That, yes. Uh, we hold the guest uh, in high regard, whoever it is mm -hmm. from, and we treat them in a particular way. And then, Oh, that may have led a little bit to our downfall. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I wouldn't change it. It's it it's better. If the thing, like for most of us, the thing is the important thing for us to learn in life is that relations are everything. Mm -hmm. It's more important than things. More important mm -hmm. than me. And it's and my friend, my Native American friend mentioned to me, that's why you're poor. At first, I thought he was insulting me because we were poor, you know, mm -hmm. and like, well, I can be the other person, you know, and, and not myself and walk around feeling really shitty. I can just do the thing that I was trained to do and taught and practice. So I practiced in my house and offer aloha to strangers as well. And that feels better. It sits well with me and doesn't hurt my gut. So mahalo for sharing all of those, like mo'olalo when you were younger and, you know, where you're from. Uh, so I know you mentioned now you live on the west side of Oahu. So can you share with us where do you live now and kind of, I guess, your journey going there and some other things, like whatever you want to share. All right. I live in Waianae which is on the west side, along with Nanakuni and Maili and Makaha. And <clears throat> so I live in Waianae specifically. But now this, nowadays, this whole area is referred to, um, the whole west side seems to be referred to as Waianae. I'm sure people are not happy with that, but I live in my <clears throat> And um, I'm fairly new. I've only been here for five years. Before that, I lived all over the place, but... I feel like once I moved to Waianae, I was like, okay, this is this is it. I'm not moving anymore. And I absolutely do not like driving mm -hmm. to town. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so this is home, you know. And I teach one class at LCC in Waianae. You know, I'm retired from teaching, but decided that I would see if I could teach at least one class here. And I think they like the idea of it because I live here. And so one of the problems with hiring people who don't live in Waianae to teach is that the traffic is so horrendous. People are often late or they're going to call in and say they can't make it because, because. And if you live here, you'll know what that's about. So I think that's one of the reasons I got the job teaching here, even though I'm retired, is that they knew I wasn't far away. Five minutes from my house, I can always make it, no excuses, unless I'm sick. So when I teach here, I teach of political science. I'm an anthropologist by training, but I teach a class in political science 
um, politics of Hawaii, which I think is right up my alley and I, I love it. But I bring to bear uh, a whole bunch of other kinds of information that I learned from the practice of anthropology. Um, so I try to put a, a kind of human face and remember that part of politics is culture because everything, everything Hawaiian is political, including Hawaiian culture. And I think I was trying to hit on a, a way of teaching that made sense to me, made the course interesting mm -hmm. for me, but pretty much ensured that the students, most of whom happen to be Hawaiian, um, could relate to, which I like to refer to as a practice of Hawaiian pedagogy. So that's kind of what I do here. I love that. Um, I'm a graduate of Leeward Community College, and I also, at my time there, actually right when I was graduating, I had an opportunity to work at Ma Organic Farms, which is based out in Lualuale. Yes. And they have a collaboration with Leeward Community College. And um, I actually got to see their satellite campus over there. And I really liked the atmosphere. This was a long time ago in 2012, but um, I really liked the atmosphere and I value all the kumu that are there because they, yeah, they just, most, some of them are from there. I don't know. It just felt like a more homey vibe that I really appreciated. Yes, that's, and that's absolutely true. And um, I think, you know, as a teacher, if, if you're using a kind of, Hawaiian pedagogy to teach. Um, that that means that you uh, fold into the the theoretical components, the uh, scholarly work. You fold into it the value of uh, experience, so that it's not really all in your head. The idea is to see how all the stuff that you've learned actually play out in real life, or does it? Are these just academic exercises or do these things that you're learning in class relate to anything that's going on in the community at any given time? So those kinds of things don't happen at other schools, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. I graduated from University of Hawaii uh, at Manoa. I finished up there and no, <laughs> that stuff was not happening then. I don't even know if it's happening now. So what you get is knowledge um, in your head, you know, intellectual, academic knowledge. And later on, you try to figure out what you're going to do with all of it or any of it. So the, the idea was to put that stuff into practice immediately. So anything that you learn today in class, sometime during the rest of the semester, we're going to participate in, in a way that you can see how this stuff relates to your life. It's really about you. All the information. Yeah gather yes that's what i liked about i feel like um the professors that taught for the west side like they really understood that the students needed that that to to see how what they're learning connects with school and vice versa yes so good i wish it was a student of my, myself <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it's like oh i don't recall any teacher actually challenging anyone to to do the kinds of things that um, require participation, maybe with a group, maybe uh, on an outing, maybe with a visit to Iolani Palace to see how all of these things really happen. You know, th these are real 
places and things happen at those places, but it's really until you see it, practice it, experience it, it's a head trip. And I've always wondered whether or not those kinds of things help us in the real world, but I, I think other teachers think they do, but I don't. Yeah, and I feel like I've been meeting or just kind of, yeah, meeting more anthropo- like Kanakamoli anthropologists or other Indigenous and Native people that are anthropologists, which is very interesting to me. Um, Native Stories is actually going to be doing a collaboration with the North Shore Field School with um, Kumu Kavika Tai Tengan. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just, this is kind of just going off of my head because we're talking about anthropology, but it's like a, you know, similar work where um, this North Shore Field School is a Saturday class for, you know, people who can't really make it throughout the week. Um but they work with the community out in Wailua to, yeah, put practice of anthropology to community and ethics. Yes. Um, which is very important. I, like, for me to, or just for people, especially in the STEM um, subjects, So I thought it was very interesting. I went to one of their graduations. And so basically their kind of big projects is they they also collect kupuna stories from those places, but it took a while to gain that trust and relationship um, for the different families that live over there. Um, I don't know why I'm mentioning it. It just came off the top of my head. But yeah, so your work kind of makes me think about anthropologists and how there are like indigenous and native peoples going into that field and really transforming it to make it um, some, something more tangible for others to think about a field to go into. Right. I'm really glad you brought up that thing about STEM because one of the concerns I have around a focus on STEM education and this, you know, pushing towards that area is a kind of, to me, denial that cultural programs were STEM education. What what they're saying is STEM, as defined in Western Western terms, um, science, as if we didn't have science. But if, I don't know, from my point of view, if it's a wholehearted acceptance of a different way of looking at stuff that we were already doing, and so you you privilege one side while you sort of um, minimize the fact that Hawaiian cultural practices included all of that stuff already. And so it's frightening to me that uh, um, it's frightening to me that there is a kind of just minimizing of Hawaiians in every way possible except when it, it contributes to economic development, if that makes sense to you. So let's yes. look at culture in, form of, in the form of craft. Let's look at culture in the form of hula. And let's see how all of this, how can you make money after you graduate from school um, using these things that you've learned without, without mentioning the fact that, man, there's a lot of people here at one time to feed. Hawaiians use science 
they use STEM programs of their own to figure out how they're going to feed a large population and to do it well. So that's, that's just me ram renting. Sorry. No. Yeah. I think um, that's a good point to bring up because one of my mentors, or I don't know if she knows that she's my mentor or not. I feel like I have a thousand different mentors and they don't know it, but whatever, um, is my Kumu Noilani Goodyear Kaupua. And um, I had the pleasure of working with her uh, a few years ago with a different cohorts for political science and social sciences. But we had talked about um Kanaka Mo'oli and how we are really like there's our native indigenous peoples is that we there's positions out here today but they don't fit us and they don't fit our knowledge systems and really what's going to happen in the future is us making paving our way and making our own positions and in the future which I feel like is evident for what's happening like following her career and other Kanakamoli careers, I feel like they really just, they really do create their own positions in order to practice our native and indigenous knowledge systems in our own right, um, which is amazing. And I feel that people should feel more empowered to do that. I agree. One of the things I think has happened is happening is our total reliance on a way of living that belongs belong basically to somebody else but our reliance on that meaning that we forget i think we're being trained to forget by the way mm -hmm. and i don't think we should forget because when a push comes to shove and we're living in that time right now by the way <laughs> we're at the shove thing People are being challenged because of COVID. Um, and I wonder sometimes if people are looking ahead to what might be called food sovereignty and food sustainability if you live on an island. Too many people, not enough resources, not enough land to grow food. That means at some point our total reliance on imported food, that's going to crash at some point. Does anybody look at that? No, but I see more and more young people, Kanaka planning, mm -hmm. which I'm happy for, looking at food sustainability, looking at growing food and and how they can do that in every single patch mm -hmm. of land that's available. And I, I feel like these guys, without knowing it, they're preparing for the worst case scenario for the future because things are never going to be the same, never. Yes, yes. And that's a, another like kind of reoccurring theme that's been happening or being spoken about, especially since we started doing this COVID-19 um, series, Community Work in the Hawaiian Kingdom. We interviewed Kuike Kamakaya Ohelo, and um, also we just interviewed Brandon Makaava. And so... Yeah, they talked a lot about food sustainability and food sovereignty and especially in the time of COVID-19 where it's actually making a lot of Kanakamoli or people relook on the, these systems and are they even sustainable? Are they working for us? Um, and I really do see that too. I see 
like the shifting of times of people recognizing that and really reclaiming land. Like I know a few of my friends who are actually, who actually they live out in Kalu and stuff. And they just literally took over some plots of land and are making lo'i. <laughs> <laughs> With determination. <laughs> yes. Like, um, and I and I know some other people who I haven't connected with in a long time, but like guys like Andre Perez or um, some folks in Hawaii Island where they kind of did similar things where they started cultivating the land and producing food and then tra- trying to trace it back on where the land is and um, seeing how they can really utilize that land to be a more educational model in order to keep it and sustain it and educate others on it. So I think that's always interesting to see. It is. I think something, well, this is a change. And I always think about that when I see new projects starting up, but I think even more it's true when, when there's not a project, but people just spontaneously look at the situation and take some kind of action to remedy it. Growing food is like really empowering. One of the reasons it's empowering is that you get to not only feed yourself, but your neighbors. So back to the thing about, I'm going to talk about anthropology and how that has impacted me in particular. I think being able to take a, a broad view of what's going on in your community and then extending that beyond your immediate community to your island, for example, or to all the islands or to the, the whole world. What are people doing to minimize their dependency on systems that apparently are not working very well? For some people, it worked really well. But for the majority of people in the world, the systems that are in place today are oppressive, controlling, unkind, Um and kind of clueless, distant from people. I, I think that comes from this idea of who has power and who does not. And as soon as people begin to grow, they assume some of that power. They have the power to grow food and to feed someone besides themselves. That is an awesome thing. That means that they're less likely to listen to so-called governor, government leaders who really don't have a a really good understanding about what's happening on the ground because as soon as they entered into politics or some kind of so-called leadership role, they moved away from what it was and what it is that people actually need. This idea to have some, a feeling of power over their own lives. And if you don't have a job and you don't have any money and you fear being evicted because you can't pay your rent or you can't pay your mortgage, what can you do? Well, today, Today I can work in my garden. Tomorrow I'm going to harvest food and I'm going to share with my neighbor. So I'm not a complete failure in this system. That may not make a lot of sense to most people out there, except unless you fall into one of those categories. I'm there. <laughs> makes sense to me. If I grow anything at all, it's going to be in a pot because I really don't have, I don't have land to become self-sufficient. I can't sustain myself. 
but I have generous neighbors. <laughs> I will do for them, they will do for me, and it's not even a trade for people who think about not trading. I'm not talking about that. We're talking about giving. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm like so excited to see what the future is going to be, especially after COVID. Um, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel has, yeah, like higher education played a role in your identity and your pathway in life as a Kanakamoli in as an educator, activist, etc. Hmm. I I went back to school when I was 39. One of the reasons I went back to school is because in 1986, my sister and her family, she had 10 children, by the way, lived on the beach at Waimanaro. <clears throat> so her husband was employed, but he was a construction worker. And when construction was down in Hawaii or on Oahu, he was out of a job. And so then you're falling back on unemployment and the difficulties with getting a place to rent if you are on employment and if you have 10 kids. If you didn't come from a big family, you wouldn't even know what that means. Back in the day, and I think even today, nobody wants to rent a home to anybody with 10 children or eight or six two max, or maybe three. So she had a dilemma. They couldn't uh, afford to pay the rent in their home, so they had to find cheaper rent. And even then, people limited them to the numbers of children they could have. So my sister had to pretend to have uh, fewer children, so maybe max three. That means she had to do something with the other kids. That means those kids were at my house, and she was going to apply for different places with, um, and, you know, just filling out an application that says she has only a few children, three children, and then she would get a place. And if the landlord lived next door, these are true stories, by the way, I'm sure others can relate. If the landlord lived next door, then she couldn't take those, those buildings. She couldn't take that apartment or that house because someone would know sooner or later that she had more than three children. These kinds of restrictions, I think they were meant to be put on large families. Who had large families? Hawaiian. Mm -hmm. And so already there's a kind of discrimination that was going on. This is like 30 years ago I'm talking. At some point, they ended up living on the beach. And lo and behold, they found out they weren't the only ones. Lots of people living on the beach. This is like 1985 or something like this. And she's living on the beach. And most people didn't have tents. They just lived in their cars. She ended up living on Waimanalo Beach at the park. I think in 1986 or so, there was a big eviction of all of the people that were living in their cars and in their tents or whatever they had, many of them with children. So we, we know that this, the, the, the homeless or houseless problem that we see today, it, it didn't just start, you know, that like 10 years ago or 20 years ago. This started way long time ago, but it was something nobody knew how to deal with. So I'm down at the beach with my sister and her family, and my mother comes and cooks for them or brings them food or whatever, but none of us has a place big enough to have her and her family with us. We just, everybody lives in apartments. So mm -hmm. it was very difficult. 
So they get evicted in 1986, and all of that was recorded, I think, by Puhipau and Joan Lander for Namakau Kaina, and it's on YouTube, I think. Um, and I see, you know, later on when I show these videos to my students, I point out my nieces and my nephews who are babies and young children in that video because even the videos themselves, if you if you don't remember or if you cannot tell a larger story, these are kind of like nobody can relate to it. They've not had that experience. They haven't gone through it. They they think it's very sad. Right up until I say this, that's my nephew right there, and this is my niece, and, and she's passed away since then because we were there. Then since she moves over to Sand Island Beach because everybody gets evicted, um, and then we find out there's a community. By this time, I've decided I got to go back to school. I'm I'm going with them to all of these meetings, and I don't know what anybody's talking about. So I went back to school because I had to understand what was going on and how it was. <laughs> Everybody in the beach was Hawaiian. How can that be? This is Hawaii, and Hawaiians are houseless and have no place. So at, at one of these things, because it was a big deal, and the news media was sending people down to the beach all the time, and I remember watching my nephew on TV, and the reporter was Jade Moon, I remember, and I, I'm pretty sure that footage is still available. She asked my nephew, um, how does it feel to be homeless, which I thought was a really stupid-ass question, and he said, I am not homeless. You see that tent over there? I live there. And that made me cry because he understood. He may not have a house, but this place, this is our home. The rest of you guys, I don't know where you came from, what you're doing here, but this, this is my home. I don't have a house right now, but I have a home. And I'm like, oh, my God. I had to go back to school because of him. I had to figure out, you know, what the problem was. And I kind of figured it out. <laughs> Okay, so now I'm teaching. And when I went back to school, by the way, I went to Hoilo campus, Hoilo College, and then it uh, was merged with Hawaii Pacific University. And after that, I went to University of Hawaii um, as an East-West Center grantee. And I could not believe all the things that I was learning. And then I actually understood why Hawaii is full of houseless people who are Hawaiian and a bunch of homeless people who are not Hawaiian. So I'm making a distinction right there. If you live in Hawaii and this is not where you're from, you are homeless. But if you live in Hawaii and this is your place, you are houseless. It is still your place and you have a home. These kinds of things really influenced me and I, I never intended to be a teacher, but I took some anthropology courses at uh, Hawaii Loa and I realized that one of the things anthropology offers is an opportunity to hear the voice of people. So yeah, there are systemic problems that need to be dealt with, but nobody listens to people unless you're in that field. You have to listen to people. And I got into it and I never wanted to leave. And you know, one of the interesting things is because I took a class from Honani K. Trask, who I thought was like the bomb. And it was the first time I heard someone say up front to my face that as a kanaka, I have kuleana to do something. 
And she looked around at the rest of the students and she said, oh, you guys, Japanese, you holy people over here, not yours necessarily. I don't even know what you're doing in my class. I had never heard a, a professor say anything like that in my life, but got to credit her. She was like upfront and in your face. And so I learned from her and I learned really that if it really is my kuleana, then how do I exercise it? And so here I am today, got into teaching without really wanting to teach as a living, for a living. I, I, I never considered myself a good teacher, but I started teaching. Um, and I think I was teaching with an attitude. And basically, teaching is not about getting a good job necessarily. It really is about learning how to think and learning to look at how systems impact how we live and how. Mahalo for that. Okay, so what advice would you give to up and coming activists, artists, educators, and Aloha Aina patriots? Well, just let me say, because I don't know if I said it before, I'm not an academic. I don't even consider myself a scholar. I'm an activist who went to school. I'm an activist who thought about how I might get people to pay more attention to what I was saying. What, what would give me credibility? I decided to go back to school. It's working with my sister and others who were houseless on the beach. I was just another person. No one paid attention to me. I had to go back to school so I could somehow get their attention. So that's me. I'm an activist who went to school. And I found that having gone to school and having credentials matters. So I can write a letter um, to the editor and sign it accordingly. And I can, um, I can stick up for other people. I have credentials. Um, so if, you're, if your motivation is to go to school as an because you're an activist, but you want to be more effective, I think that's absolutely going to work. But you're also going to meet people. So the idea of networking, or from my point of view, relationship building is primary. Networking is how they say what they do when they meet other people. So we're not exactly networking. We're forming relationships, and those relationships have the potential to last for a really long time. And so... What happens in the field when you're <clears throat> planning an action or doing an action and you need certain kinds of information, you are going to call somebody or contact someone that you know can help you. That That's not because you have a network. That's because you have a relationship and it has become personal and you can call somebody and say, hey, I really need this. Case in point, you want to do an action that requires you to be on the street after hours in a big group marching down the road with torches, you want to call somebody you know who can facilitate that happening for you. And I mentioned that as a, um, an example because that has happened. So it's not about networking, but it is about being able and willing to sort of impose on someone who likes you, with whom you have a good relationship, and that person can help you get done something that you would have to go through a whole bunch of other paperwork to do. So go to school, learn, learn stuff, um, meet people, 
form relationships with your fellow students and your instructors. And later on, you may remember them and reach out and help them and also ask them to help you. I think <clears throat> education is helpful. I may not be happy with the university education and all of its aspects, but it has been very helpful for me. I'm pretty much learning still what not to do, but I have learned um, how to navigate. And that's one thing I think people will find out what is the best way to navigate the system so that you come out with um, some really good skills at doing whatever it is that you're going to do. What was your other question? Mahalo for those answers. Um, so, yeah, like wrapping it up, uh, I like to ask this question to everybody. So what do you envision for the future of the Lahui and the Hawaiian Kingdom? Okay. The Hawaiian Kingdom continues to exist. So it's not whether we like it or not, it's here. Manifesting that is a little different, a little difficult, I think. But I think that we are all necessary because you can manifest government, but I don't know if that's the same as manifesting the Lahui. So that means, from my point of view, everybody has a role to play and everybody is important. We may not be government. We may not be the administrators of the Hawaiian kingdom in actuality, the Hawaiian kingdom in practice, but we have a role to play because we are the Lahui. In the same way that the people signed the Kuwait petition and were very successful, we, we're them. So we're the embodiment today of our own ancestors and we are useful. And I think that we ought to push as much as we can, not for ourselves, because I think it's kind of like too late for ourselves right now to make a difference, but for the next generation. And I would say that also to you, the generation that comes after you should have the full benefit of the Hawaiian kingdom in actuality. Yes. And that comes in, that actually is a nice leeway into my um, next question. We like to ask our people that we have on Native Stories podcast is, do you have a call to action for them to do at this time? Well, two <laughs> big call to action for me because, because of what's going on with the military presence in Hawaii at RIMPAC and, and what's going on at Pohakuloa, which is continued bombing. We, we got to figure out a way to clean up our aina that has been damaged due to military impact. But we also got to find a way to to try to influence other countries to resolve issues without war, without war machines, without mentality that looks at war as like the way to go. Because war has already been shown to be less about um, keeping the peace than money. So yes, there is economic development in militarism and war, and it's got to be a way for us to do better. We need to evolve. So the call to action is that, how do we get all of these people who are sort of stuck in a mentality that obviously doesn't work? How do we get them to evolve to the next stage? 
I think some of us are there already. We're waiting for them to catch us. We need help. Okay. So what steps can they take for um, to try and help to stop RIMPAC or just educate themselves, I guess? Educate, show up, write letters. Do not let your children join the military. Um, rethink a system that doesn't require that doesn't require to always be on guard um, and ready to attack if someone is doing bad things, basically. And I have to go back. I don't think of the military is evil necessarily, but I think it's a wonderful moneymaker. And if you look at militarism as economic development, as it is in Hawaii, right, militarism and tourism, there's got to be a way that militarism can't, can't dominate our our landscape, our our lands, and I guess what it is, I want everybody to grow up. I want especially powerful white men to knock it off before they kill us all. I don't think that people understand that if if the so called underclass goes, which is us, they'll be who, who's going to be left? What's it all for? Okay, I don't want to wax philosophical. Call to action is this, do the right thing. Let your gut determine for you what the right thing is. Don't, don't engage in those things that bring harm to others. So do no harm. And you guys can find more information about how to stop RIMPACT at stoprimpact.org. Or you could just search it on cancel RIMPAC. I know there's a bunch of hashtags and also you can search that on Facebook. Um, okay. And then also I want you to kind of plug again, how can our listeners get in contact with you or involved in the community work that you do? Um, do you, can you share again your email, um, the website, etc.? I'm on Facebook. My my name, Lynette Cruz, and you can find me there. My picture is the one is Iolani Palace. And you can contact me through Messenger. I'm not on Twitter, but I am on Facebook. And you can also email me at L Cruz, L C R U Z at Hawaii.edu if you're interested in joining our organization. Um, we may be a little too um activist for you but that's okay you would like us we're very kind <laughs> mahalo 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 for sharing your story with us at native stories um so for everyone if you all want to further connect with us you can please do we are looking for more stories and podcast host collabs so if you're interested let us know and you can download our mobile app for place-based stories and listen to us on all streaming podcast outlets you just have to search native stories follow us on facebook same name native stories and we're also on instagram but our handle's a little different on there it's our native stories with o-u-r in the beginning of it um we share daily on native and indigenous kaimea on our socials so make sure that you share with us um 
to your ohana and friends. And here at Native Stories, we pride ourselves in being your resource. And the more that you share us, the more our Indigenous and Native knowledges and truths are told. So sending plenty of aloha to you all out there in the time of COVID-19, this pandemic. And mahalo nui for tuning in. Ahoy ho.